Yes, folks, it's hot air time again with me, Mike Borman, and my esteemed guest this week is Mr. Mark Barrett, the man behind the label International Feel. Now, International Feel at one time felt more like a cult than a record label. Mark started it up in Uruguay back in 2009, and it just took everyone by surprise. Firstly, the fact that it was coming out of Uruguay, and then, of course, there was the music, which was brilliant. It kind of married up the lyric with cosmic, with disco, and as it was to turn out years later, a load of it was being made by Mark himself behind a load of smoke and mirrors of pseudonyms and trumped up backstories. Uh, and all the releases were pressed up on limited edition high quality vinyl at a time when almost no one else had the bottle to do anything like that. And then of course there was the association with DJ Harvey which just ramped up all the hysteria on the underground even more. Uh, you'd be seeing international feel vinyl on Discogs going for hundreds of pounds back then. It was bonkers. And now the label's doing completely the opposite. At times, quite blatantly courting the mainstream. Mark being Mark, he's rejected many of the original ideals just because he can. And it's just this unashamed his way or the highway clarity of thought that makes him such great copy for an interview. So we will delve deep into his psyche and we will see what happens. So um, I saw you say once that you were aspiring to the culture of nothing. Tell me more about that. Um, I think it kind of started uh, with, I think this is a statement made by Leonardo da Vinci, which was um, simplicity through sophistication, although it might have been sophistication through simplicity because I guess it works either way round. And, and something just really um, instinctively resonated with me with that statement. And it was, I'm trying to think when it was, I guess it was 2008, 2009, um, where we were in Uruguay and we had, well, I had started International Feel in 2008 and that was going pretty well. And we just seemed to have been very bogged down with stuff um, in as much as you know we had a house and another little property and another little beach house and then you have to buy things to put in them and you know I had a full stu studio where I'd flown out an acoustics guy from London to make sure that he had got a good sound and all of that kind of thing and I don't know if it was a sudden zeitgeist moment or just a more gradual osmosis um but everything just not got on top of me just seemed to kind of get to the point of maximization you know it's almost like a sort of spinal tap rock or jazz, jazz odyssey album where everything got to the point of there's just too much of everything and, and being very much a contrarian at heart and kind of a person that makes bold decisions quite quickly without really any regret, I just thought enough is enough is enough. And so we started selling everything. And then around that time, um, 
a couple of things happened. Um, I had a cat that had been with me since he was a kitten and he was 19 years old and he died. And I also kind of saw a little bit into the future with my parents and saw that they would need more care and attention going forwards. And I've always been of the opinion that, that with your family and with your parents, it's not a one-way street. You don't say, I'm 18 or I'm 20, I'm leaving home, thanks, bye. It's more a boomerang where you know at some point <clears throat> it's going to come back to you and and you have a responsibility, which is in you know this year, last year, is very, very much the case. But in 2010, 2011, I could see that coming. And I already knew from having done the journey twice a year that Uruguay to my parents' house in the north of England was 28 hours door to door. And so it was quite an arduous journey anyway it was an expensive journey and equally if there was a crisis or an emergency you know you may as well be 40 hours away or 60 hours away and so we came to Europe in the summer of 2012 I think it was and um, landed in Ibiza it felt very much like home very quickly and so we decided that we'd look for a place to rent here and we did a little mini tour of Europe and went to the family and went to Berlin, which is where we'd lived prior to Uruguay. We did a month there and I think we picked the wrong flat and it was very noisy and it didn't feel right and the weather was very bad because I think for both kind of my wife and I, we really wanted to see if Berlin would work again for a third time because we'd lived there, we'd moved to Italy We'd move back to Berlin and then to Uruguay, and we have a very strong um, affiliation with the city. I think if you're going to live in a city, it's a really wonderful place to live. My wife's family is from Berlin, and so there's a lot of ties there. And um, we went back and really didn't have a good time. And that's no disrespect to the city. It was a combination of how we felt as individuals, the the place that we'd actually rented for a month and so we actually were there I think two weeks of the four and we came straight back to Ibiza and that felt really nice and so because of the whole confluence of circumstances that I've just mentioned we decided to move over here and you don't really want to be doing that journey in reverse from Uruguay so there was a degree of practicality into it and you know we'd move from berlin to uruguay and you've got everything gets packed up and it goes onto a shipping container and it arrives three four months later and it's expensive and there's taxes and it's drawn out and you have to deal with customs so we got back after this little three-month trip around europe to uruguay and just said let's sell everything and it was really that and it was a joint simpler decision. decision. Yeah, very much so. You know, it was a joint decision. It was a simple decision and it was an obvious decision. And, and you know, it's like most things. You can look back with hindsight or as Tony Wilson said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And you can say, oh, this thing happened or this wonderful thing happened because of this. And actually, when you look back and you look at the cold, hard truth, 
it might not have been this. What I mean by that is I could talk to you now about minimalism, the cult of nothing, the aspiration of simplicity in all our lives, and I could say it was this grand spiritual awakening. And But the reality is it was more a practical awakening of saying we need to come back to Europe, we don't want to bring all this stuff back, and let's start giving it away and selling it away. Um, and, and that's kind of what I meant with with the prior statement that often things happen and you can look back with rose-tinted spectacles and say, oh, it happened because of all these wonderful things. Especially when but you're I being interviewed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's we're all actors on a stage anyway and musicians <laughs> yeah. and artists are sort of triple or quadruple that. It's our job to, you know, and this is kind of one of my bugbears a little bit with Twitter and with Instagram. You know, I don't want to see a picture of somebody's lunch or I don't want to hear their political opinions the reality is I grew up in an age where pop stars were Nick Rhodes or Spandau Ballet or Wham and they were untouchable and I think you know somewhere in the middle is a really nice place to be between this is what I had for lunch and you know this unavailability or untouchability somewhere in the middle is a nice balance mm. and so yeah you know when we're talking and doing interviews of course there's embellishments it's not the reality and 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 I guess the bigger you get the more this becomes a case or the more exaggerated it becomes you you become a persona or a caricature of yourself and uh, you know the reality of your own life is based in the reality of your artistic life and vice versa it may very well be that the, the myths and legends that spring up around you have the basis in truth as you could argue does a Loch Ness monster Yes. Um, but the reality is often quite different. And so our reality was we came back to Europe and I had a studio and a little farm thing or really a shack on a chunk of land in the middle of nowhere and a house. And, you know, obviously we sold the houses, but a lot of the possessions we gave away and we set ourselves a very simple um, rule base which was we'll have a big suitcase each a carry-on suitcase each and a laptop bag and what goes in there is down to each of us as individuals but aside from that um, you know everything's going to get given away I mean most the houses got sold but most of the possessions got given away you know and I guess the famous one that's relative to this discussion is I had a mini move which is a very valuable and coveted synthesizer and I gave it away. The guy that picked it up was like, are you sure you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, take it. He's like, no, 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 are you really sure? And I'm like, take it. And, and, and obviously what happened is, you know, then there's a seed planted in your brain. So the first year we lived in Ibiza, it was a very transient existence in as much as we lived in a place where we knew we were only staying for a year. Um, so you don't, do anything to the house because it's somebody else's house and equally you know you don't even do any small comfort things you kind of live with what you've got and we were living pretty much out of suitcases and it felt kind of really good to not have this burden of stuff whether it was a roof repair or a wardrobe full of clothes and once you've got that seed it kind of sprouts in uncontrollable directions. It's a bit like, 
when you do a record and then you release it, it it's no longer your responsibility and you no longer have control over it. What happens to it happens to it. And that analogy springs true as well when for whatever reason you choose a more minimalistic existence, it starts to permeate into different areas of your life. Mm. And again, I guess the one that's most relevant to this discussion um, in terms of music, you know, I went from a full studio. If you look at, for example, the Beppo and Gali track, that was made in a really nice studio with a really nice view, acoustically perfect, with wonderful monitoring in Uruguay. And then you look at the Sketches album, they were made on an old battered wooden table with a laptop, a pair of headphones and a little mini keys keyboard sat on my knee. And so this reality started to uh, chain reaction or osmosify into different areas of my life, particularly my music making. And I found it very, very liberating that Beppo Angali, if we use that as, as the example of maximization in this wonderful studio with a wonderful view, blah, 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 in, in, in Uruguay, it took three weeks to do. I mean, part of that was me trying to get it to sound like a full band, which you could argue when you've spent all that time, it's probably easier to hire a full band than edit it down. <laughs> it would have been. Um, yeah. I always, but, but then, you know, it was really refreshing when I started on the sketches track because there was no preconceptions they were they were um they were happy accidents that happened and they were really quick there was no kind of oh three weeks two weeks even a week there were tracks that were happening in a day or two days or three days or at the most a week and i i think that was the exception not the rule and and then that gives you greater studio confidence because everything you start doing then starts to happen quicker because you know that it can you know it doesn't have to take so long so that's just a one very practical example of how a minimalistic approach to living can impact creativity in a positive mm. way mm. and and since then you know we've been in Ibiza and between Ibiza and England for a number of years now and you know I have bought and sold always at a loss of course numerous synthesizers because you know i i come from that period of synth pop and, and owning roland synthesizers in the 80s and 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 it's, you always feel more in inverted commas complete when you've got a couple of synthesizers but for me because i don't really make synthesizer music i make acoustic or world music with synthesizers in them you know it's not really necessary you know I've always said I think I've probably said to you music technology is a great hobby that has nothing to do with the making of music yes um, and so from that perspective you know I've bought synthesizers I've sold synthesizers I've bought da, 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 da. and I found that I'm happiest making music with that kind of purity of, of the laptop a pair of headphones and a keyboard on my lap and now I have a bigger keyboard so I can play chords and stuff <laughs> you know <laughs> oh to, how to many my keys now uh, I got a 49 key Ooh. keyboard which is yeah I know I'm, I'm grown <laughs> up high rolling yeah you yeah, certainly exactly. didn't when so, I saw you um, up at the villa well what's wonderful you know is if you're using your computer keyboard as a keyboard or a little two octave mini key keyboard as a keyboard you've got to be really inventive with what you've got and that 
is a very, very interesting byproduct of minimalism. If you if you decided through uh, your own choice or through circumstances have forced a choice on you for for some people that you've got to make do with what you can do, I I think necessity is a mother of invention. So it comes back to the to the Leonardo da Vinciism of either sophistication through simplicity or simplicity through sophistication you you can do some wonderful things with very little whether it's in a garden in a music studio creating art uh, decorating a room whatever it might be i think society consumeristic society has become so overblown you know, it's like the equivalent in music terms of a prog rock album that has an orchestra on every track and <laughs> took 20 years to make. You know, society's become so consumeristic and so globalist or globalized. I think I'm far more interested in localization and simplicity and, and that informs all areas of my life. I don't really have a wardrobe full of clothes anymore because, you know, without sounding trite, if I look at the cats... They've got the fur on the back and they're kind of okay with that. You know, it's like the Zen statement, you know, each little bird provides infinite truth. And and I think there's something very pure about that. So, you know, if I look at my daily life, I'm very dependent on a computer, but but I would take that old Steve Jobs phrase of, of a bicycle for the mind. You know, it, it, I use it whether I'm emailing, running the label, doing other stuff or making music, but I don't need much beyond that and beyond a couple of bits of clothes and you know I'm more engaged and happy to be where we are in terms of the low level of ambient noise the yeah. sunset view the bird song you know I've just finished a wonderful piece of music <laughs> um, and 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 I went out I thought oh, it's just missing something I went outside and just stuck a microphone outside for 10 minutes and added that to the track and it just kind of brought it alive and so you know we saw each other last a few weeks ago when I played at Spiritland in London and that was really quite a distressing thing for me purely because of the level of ambient noise it was just so bizarre you know I mean the ambient noise around this house is is birdsong. There are really no people. I see it when I go to the airport, but it kind of is is very disconcerting to me to land in a big city like London or or even up north in Sheffield where my parents and where I was brought up are from. And it's very, very, very unsettling. So for me, it's not really about the possessions I've got. It's about the location of where I live, what's around me, can I eat organic food, can I do all of these things that meet my own life goals and my own quality of life, and that more and more increasingly year by year means less and less, ironically. So uh, when, you, when was the time when you got control of your diet? Ooh, wow, I didn't expect that question. Um, you know, I was, I, I'm nearly 50 years old, so I was brought up in the 70s and, and up, up north. <laughs> you know, the delicacy was a fingers cheese pancake um, with salad cream on. Um, <laughs> Bread and, and butter and, you know, on I, the side. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's... it's, it's 
I come from a period where, where nobody really thought about diet and it's really unfortunate to see that my parents' generation or what I call the cancer generation, my dad's had prostate cancer twice, there's there's hardly any of his friends or friends of friends if you use two or three degrees of separation that have not had a cancer or a cancer scare and yet if you look at my grandparents generation hardly any of them had cancer and so you look at what happened in my father's generation and it's a delocalization of food it's the onset of supermarkets which i would imagine for people of my parents' age, after the rationing and, and austerity of the Second World War, it was very alluring to actually have supermarkets and, and a, a much wider variety of choice. And so I grew up, I guess, with a pretty bad diet. You know, my dad will have grown up to have been 20 or 30 years old, where the beet, sorry, the meat or, or, or whatever it was would have been grown on or, or would have been reared on local land, killed by a local butcher, vegetables by the very nature would have been organic and then in came all the fertilizers and um i guess my first diet awakening was when when i met my wife because she was a lifelong vegetarian and at that point i had already kind of cut out meat just because it don't really want to eat it doesn't taste nice doesn't look nice doesn't have a nice texture doesn't feel right and so so it wasn't really a, a big push over the hill to turn vegetarian um and then that over the over years naturally bit by bit gravitated to being probably 95 percent vegan and and trying to eat local organic produce whenever and wherever i could which obviously is not so very easy when I'm in England and very easy when you're in rural Ibiza. So did you find, uh, what, did you find an improvement in your creativity and your ability to concentrate on getting stuff done once you took control of your diet and made some changes? Well, I guess I can answer it this way. Um, I'm not a big believer in modern medicine. I think modern trauma medicine is great you know if you have a car crash or you need a major operation but day-to-day -day modern medicine i don't really find very alluring or suitable for me and and so i've been a great believer in naturopathic medicine for a long time now and a year ago i was with my naturopathic doctor and she recommended i had a genetic profile done um because it it kind of can showcase any areas of weakness and, and you can make lifestyle and diet changes kind of going forward. And one of the things it kind of showed beyond any doubt, which amazed me, was that because of my set of genes, probably from my mother, Barnsley genes, um, was the fact that I would almost certainly have an autoimmune disease by now if I didn't lead the life that I do and eat the way that I do. So that was, that really, really kind of struck home to me. It was like, wow. So there is, you know, I, why is somebody a vegan? Because for a host of reasons, health reasons, spiritual reasons, belief reasons. And I guess for me, it's all of those things. I don't like meat. I don't like animal cruelty. I think the modern abattoir system is barbaric. 
I think on a spiritual level, animals have as much a right to live as we do, um, you know, but I'm not evangelistic about it. It's not for me to bang on a table and say everybody should do what I do or eat this way or live this way. I'm very much a believer of live and let live and we all have freedom of choice and that's what defines us as individuals. But for me, it was really quite interesting to see that report and go, wow, you know, for me, it really has had a benefit beyond almost what I thought it had had which is just feeling pretty good every day. You know, I'm 48 years old and I'm very, I guess, disciplined. I do an hour's exercise every day. I meditate every day. I try and eat well every day. And then obviously go on a chocolate binge every now and then. <laughs> and um, and it does have benefits. You know, I, I look at my father at 48, as best I can remember him, and I look at myself at 48, and it's nice to feel good. So back to the Uruguay days, uh, even though you've described that uh, you gave away a lot of possessions from Uruguay, my reading of the situation is that one of the things that helped you actually do international feel, aside from the fact you were financially sound and you had time, was the fact that you were actually in Uruguay and thus disengaged from the noise of European or US club land? Yeah, well, on two levels. I mean, firstly, we talked about everything leaving Berlin in a shipping container and arriving six, eight, ten weeks later, I can't remember. And I'd taken a little setup with me, a little laptop and a keyboard and a little pair of speakers, and I wrote the Rocha single, um, sat at the dining room table waiting for everything else to arrive because there was nothing to do. So it, it kind of filled the void and started the label but then once you know the label released that first song because you know i've told the story a trillion and one times nobody else would release it so i got quite angry and determined and released it myself um and then all of a sudden you're like ah okay there's there's a label here there's a sort of semi-identity i've got to kind of do something i've got to release a second thing and then think about signing somebody and doing a third thing and oh, wow and and sure once i got over that little hump of sort of thinking this could be something or do i want this to be something and all of that sort of thing then it definitely definitely helped not to be in london or berlin or wherever it could have been because there's nothing you know I, i've said to quote myself the scene was the scene in my head yeah which it still is you know i'm not interested in noise you know i got offered uh, yesterday a, a very enticing project on paper to sign for the label but the music just didn't instinctively gel with me so i passed on it but but for sure aesthetically it would have been a really interesting thing to do for the label but i'm just not interested in what anybody else is doing you know it, it reminds me there's a wonderful wonderful book that i read try and read every year is brian eno's diaries from the mid 90s my year with swollen appendices um and part of the ongoing narrative in that book is he's working on the passengers album with you too and i think that there's I, I, and this isn't a verbatim quote by a million miles there's there's a quote where bono's saying oh what about this what about that what about this and Nino's going what 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 bono's going well aren't you a fan and Nino goes no i'm not a fan of anything mm. and, and and without sounding disrespectful or or flippant i kind of am like that you know i have a very 
interesting life to me, but it's not very mainstream or unique. I'm not interested in what's going on at Fabric or what's going on in Phonica or what's going on in this scene or that scene or what's going on in the mainstream news. You know, I'm interested in my world. It's almost like a Sherlock Holmes um, mentality, which is another one of my sort of semi-obsessions, which is, you know, in the very first book, A Study in Scarlet, Watson's making this list because he can't work out what Sherlock's job is or what his vocation is. And he's saying, oh, he has no um, sensational literature. He knows everything about sensational literature, but nothing about astrology. And, and that's kind of my world. I know what I know really well. You know, I could talk to you all day about sharks or cricket or music or specifically music technology. And we have done with cricket. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, and these are things which for me are wonderful, whether it's Test Max Special or a great white shark um, or a synthesizer or whatever it might be. But I'm not really interested in hanging out with a bunch of musicians and listening to music and talking about... Um, this or that or the other that's related to to a scene i i'm just not interested yes i'm quite a loner as a person and i'm almost you know a pseudo hermit i guess but that suits me it's nothing bad or good it's just who i am as an individual and i'm not going to pander to any situation just because it's potentially beneficial you know i remember being told as a young drum and bass musician 20 years ago, oh, it'd be so much easier for you if you came to London and got involved in the scene. And I wasn't interested then, and I'm definitely not interested now in in any social activity around music. You know, I, I'm, I do socialize with musicians, whether it's you or, you know, I see a lot of Gerd Janssen when he comes over in the summer, and obviously we work on the Talamanca project together with Philip. But by and large, I'm not somebody that needs to hang out in a scene to get validity or to double stamp a second opinion that, that meets with mine. And at the end of the day, if I've done a piece of music and somebody thinks it's wonderful and I think it's bad, I don't care what anybody else thinks and vice versa. If I think it's great, you know, like the Young Gentleman's Adventure Society, everybody told me that was crap and not to release it. And he did pretty well. That that is the reason we're having this conversation, the adventure party track. That blew my head off. I can remember. Um, I actually had a job interview with uh, with Ben Watt, and I thought, well, I haven't been that engaged with music for a while. I'd best do a bit of research on some cool labels to just sort of pretend. And I found that. I thought, what the hell is this? This is bananas. <laughs> yes, that, that, that was something else. And yeah, it doesn't surprise me people uh, saying that, uh, that, that they wouldn't put it out because it, it wears so many different hats. And I suppose... I mean, that, that, that was just a really simple thing. I heard a Horsemeat Disco podcast and they played classic disco next to Acid House. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and then I sat down, and out came out that, and then everybody's saying, "Oh, you got to follow it up. You got to do the next one like that." And it's like, I just can't. That's not who I am. Mm. You know, I don't really care for a career in careerist terms, and I don't think I can sustain it. I'm too, probably a little bit too weird as an individual, to be able to, to be that scheming. And it's not not scheming in a Machiavellian way, but to keep one sound or to keep doing one thing or 
you know, I, I get offered a lot of DJ gigs and 99% of them I turn down because I'm not interested in traveling anymore. Mm. And, you know, so I'm not really careerist, which is bizarre because the label's done pretty well. And, you know, certainly since sketches, I've done pretty well as an artist as well. But it's almost by accident, not by design, which is more fun. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I see the the concept of minimalism as a symptom of someone who's introverted, actually. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a byproduct of someone who gets quite a lot from within and from their own um, their, their own circle, let's say, their own small circle, their own home life, their own habits. Yeah, again, you know, if you, whether it's you or anybody that knows me, particularly through music, said if I said to them, oh, I'm shy, they'd laugh because, you know, I do these things, whether it's with you or going on Giles Peterson or doing interviews, and I come across as very gregarious, but it's only a character actually i am pretty shy and i'm pretty quiet and you know my ideal week would be listening to a great audiobook crickets on somewhere in the world reading reading a lot and 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 have a track on the go and not have to go out anywhere and not have to leave the house almost although you know it's, we've got a chunk of land around it which is nice because i can leave the house but not leave the house yeah and i'm just kind of a really quiet person particularly these days the more i've got into meditation the more introverted and quiet i've become i don't really feel the need to uh, to be anything other than who i am you know the reality is at this age if i can't be myself then i i should give up trying to be quite honest you know and you know i i'm, I'm cognizant of another sort of Zen master's phrase, which is thousands of years old, which is searching out the truth isn't necessary. You just need to get rid of all your opinions and views because <laughs> the truth is the truth is in front of you in every moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of resonates more to me than have you heard this new song? You know, I'm more interested in that. You know, if you listen to what I listen to on my iPod or my iPhone these days, it's the meditations that I do, it's audio books and it's Indian classical music when I'm doing yoga. And I don't really listen to that much music. You know, I spent a life of listening to tens of thousands of pieces of music. And sure, there's something wonderful on a communication level when you hear something new, but that's why I'm not an in inverted commas digger. I don't have that that desire to go out and find new music and share with people. I have a, a desire still to make new music and share it with people, but that's a different thing, I think, although it's perhaps related. You know, and for me, I'm just kind of happy being really quiet, staying at home, reading about sharks, reading Sherlock, listening audiobooks, making music you know, hanging out with friends occasionally, that to me gives me more joy and fulfillment. So it's almost like social minimalism than, than being part of a scene and then having to learn to filter out all the noise and all the social media stuff. I'm just not interested. Yeah, but I, I think that deep down you are interested 
in being known by a scene, but not being known as part of one. Would you say that's fair? It's an interesting question. I remember when I was doing drum and bass music and I was Future Loop Foundation and I wasn't part of the scene in inverted commas. And I always felt that I, you know, I was like Tiny Tim walking past the window in a Christmas carol, looking in to a happy family, kind of tucking well, into the Well, you the were white and... for starters. I mean, that was an issue, wasn't it? When you were on Radio 1 as a white guy doing drum and bass. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's so long ago now. I don't want to kind of get into that 1% because... You know, on a personal level, one of the things that blows my mind is that on one level, humanity has the power to put a person on the moon. And on the other level, we still judge people because of the color or the sexuality or the background or the class. It's like nuts. It's it's one of the biggest disconnects in the world. And 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 I think I didn't like being on the outside looking in. And so one of the conscious decisions I made early on with international feel and I don't know if it's still relevant because you know time's passed eight years has passed but definitely I wanted to be in in people's minds I wanted to be relevant I didn't want to be mid-table decision division two yeah you know I wanted to be um there or thereabouts and and there was a conscious and conscientious effort in the, in the early days of international field to build a brand to make sure that was happening and then you know i guess it worked because i'm very lucky in that in all this plethora of noise and multitudinous options of content that people have not just within music people still buy and are listening to and are touched by and engaged by the music i make which is you know, if one person is, that's all you can ask. That's why you release music, otherwise you keep your own archive. Mm. It's a strange irony um, that actually, what, from my reading of it, what made International Fear what it was, and actually what makes it what it is now, is a very systematic playing of this scene that you are so disengaged from. Perhaps it's a lesson that if you step away from something, you can actually analyse it better than when you're in the thick of it. Well, a chunk of cliché spring to mind, wood for the trees, yes, the word that's yes. on the tip of your tongue that you can't quite get out. <laughs> and I think that's the nature of, of uni what I would call universal energy, um, which as I'm in Ibiza a chunk of time, I guess I can say something like that. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's the more you chase something, the more it sort of hovers just in front of you and laughs at you and stays just out of reach. It's far better to let something go completely and let circumstance or let fate or let life or let the present moment take its course. And, you know, for me now, I, I'm, very, I'm in a very privileged position. You know, the label's established. It has a, a brand identity. It's seems to have a place in people's hearts which is is kind of humbling and exciting and wonderful all at the same time and and you know at the same time my own music seems to have that resonance with people which is really enjoyable because it means i can release music when i want without being beholden to somebody else's um release schedule 
and nobody's going to weigh an army which has its good and bad points and I get to do what I want when I want so it's true musical freedom without any careerism and of course I play the game a little bit every release is PR'd and you try and sell as many as you can if you think back to every classic album in history whether it's compass point release or a beatles release it was never limited limited was never a currency that you traded via discogs it was sold in as much as it could if we're going to actually make that leap to release records and be good enough as professional musicians to release records surely we want to do as best we can and not do a too cool for school 200 handstand white run and then rub our hands together with smug satisfaction when the price shoots up on discogs yes i've done that and i don't want to do it anymore you know i'm not saying i'm perfect or anything like that or that i have the correct approach you know it's i can't remember which german philosopher said it but you know slap bang in the middle of a contradiction is the best place to be (laughs) Uh, and i and i agree with that so yeah you know i mean the initial Young Gentleman's Adventure Society release was 30 copies. So, you you know, I can't level what I've just said at others and not at myself. But I think it's become too prevalent in a lot of dance music scenes. Everything's too limited. And it's created this frenzy. You know, if you read books on neurology and neuroplasticity and heuristics, which are patterns and how the amygdala and the cortex and all these things function the most powerful marketing technique is scarcity. And that to me kind of doesn't really gel with the rest of my life anymore. It doesn't really gel with my overall feeling of abundance and it doesn't really gel with, you know, wanting to make the best records that we can and get them out there to as many people as possible rather than just some urban myth that it might have existed. Yes, yes. Um, and, and yeah, as you said, I mean, it's good that you use the word contradiction, actually, because uh, a harsh critic who would read one or two of your quotes out of context would say that international feel is one big contradiction because at the beginning it was this, oh, it was overtly um, against commercialism it was completely different to what else was out at the time it was limited Um, it had elaborate artwork it wasn't commercially viable in that sense and now there here we are in the guardian making ambient music which is for a much wider audience than uh, than than international feel was originally Um, and but i just think that the link to all of this and why it isn't a contradiction is you're just subverting the obvious every time because that's how you roll. Yeah, that, that's who I am. I'm a contrarian, I'm a living contradiction, and I make no excuses or apology for it. As I said to you a few minutes ago, at this age, if I haven't figured out who I am and if I'm not comfortable with who I am, I'm probably in a slightly problematic area. You know, the reality is that for me, you know, when I'm meditating, but as much as I can in the rest of my life, it's about the present moment, it's about presence. And so an interview, if we use that as an example, is only a moment in time. This interview is only a snapshot of me at this time. Tomorrow I could be different, in an hour I could be different, two days ago I was probably different. And so, you know, people, this is what we talked about earlier, people can't 
read an interview and believe it as reality. It's a version of reality that's prevalent or, or not prevalent, that's relevant rather at this time. It's relevant at this moment in time that it's happening, but it is only one perspective and it is a version of reality and it's not the real me because the real me, you know, is, is quieter and shyer and more introverted. And, you know, unless you've got monstrous amounts of talent and you're just putting out handstand white labels in quantity that everybody loves, or you're the next Prince or John Lennon or David Bowie or whomever, then you've got to play the game and you've got to find that balance. And I'm pretty happy with the balance I found between the quiet introverted me and the me that has to talk about the label and the music that I release and make and and and, and find a home for it and make sure that people are aware that it's out there. So with, with the current phase of international feel where it's basically behaving more like a major label or sort of a, a mid-sized label that I would be familiar with from my childhood. Um, it, you're appearing in mainstream media. Um, is this through gritted teeth? No, not at all. You know, it was wonderful chatting to The Guardian. Would I want to chat to The Guardian on a piece that's now had, I'm told, five million views? Or would I want to talk to a fanzine in Ghent that has 100 hand stamps? Actually, I want to talk to both. If yeah. they're both interesting and the questions are engaging, I want to do both. You know, I don't place a judgment. I try not to, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, not judging people because of of their color or their sexuality or their background or their upbringing, just try and judge them for who they are in that moment because we all change continually. And it's the same thing. I don't suddenly think, oh, the Guardian or, oh, the fanzine. It's, it's kind of all the same. If you decide or agree to do something, you've got to, in that moment, be as committed and passionate about it as you possibly can. And, and it doesn't really bother me. You know, one could argue that I've been quietly banging away now for 20 years and with international feel for eight years and since sketches as a musician under my own name for four or five years. And so one would hope that we are or that I am moving in the right direction and that, that The Guardian is a natural progression from the fanzine. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that um, people should spend phases of their okay maybe you wouldn't say that people should because you're not you don't really want to be passing judgment on others but let's say in your case do you think it was of great benefit to have times in life when you very much were engaged with a scene i.e let's say circa 88 lead mill watching graham park off your tits acid house but then have periods where you completely disappear from from a scene and use what you've learned from that scene in your own sort of time and space again you know it's it's almost like the statement slap bang in the middle of a contradiction you know I, I there was nothing like going to the lead mill and then going to occasions and seeing Parrot and winston and being so you know as an 18 year old being so enthused by that music that you had to make it you wanted to as a musician you wanted to make it you wanted to figure out how those sounds were coming out of the speakers and how you could make your take on it 
and I've had periods where I've had six months of writer's block and don't want to go any anywhere near music. I've had periods where all I want to do is make music and anything else in life is a distraction. I've had periods where, much like now, there's a balance. There's periods within that of intense effort, like I've just finished a couple of singles that I'm going to release this summer. And then until the next period of intense effort, there's a period of, of detached, calm tranquility. Whereas maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there wasn't that period of balance of calm tranquility. It was just like intense, intense, next, 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 next. And that's, you know, that's the hunger of, of being 25, 30 or whatever it is. And I'm still very hungry, but in a different way, I'm very hungry to make the best music that I can make and then market that as effectively as I can to make sure that it reaches as many people as it can and not be embarrassed about that. Mm. Do you think that um, if we can narrow down an ideology to being minimalist or introverted, do you think that it's wise to have to to have uh, to not follow one ideology like that for the whole of one's life? Oh, absolutely. I flick around like a little moth around multiple flames. It drives people nuts. It's, it's, it's you know, my wife is very literal. Um, I don't know if that's a German thing or just a her thing. But, you know, it's like what you say is actuality. And I'm, you know, I'm Mr. Fickle. I jump around from ideology to ideology to idea to decision to new decision to change decision on a minute by minute basis. And I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating, but I don't hold to anything. If I made a decision and it's a wrong decision, what's stopping me making a new decision immediately and then another and then another and then another? And what's stopping me flipping ideologies, you know, from, from one to B to D to F? on the day but nothing's stopping me doing that potentially you could argue that society's stopping me doing that but then i don't adhere to the duality of modern society so i don't really care mm-hmm. back to the uh, the musical minimalism we were discussing where small keyboards we were talking about i went to quite an interesting seminar with matthew herbert who's been entrusted with reviving the um the BBC monophonic workshop. And an interesting thing that was raised there was um, how they're, they're creating instruments with, with absolutely no display like that, like absolutely no display that we would recognise, where it's up to you to kind of unlock what it's got. Um, I mean, do you, do, you th- do, you think that, do you think there's a lot to be said for not really knowing all that much about the technology you're using and just kind of allowing the accidents to happen. I think, again, it's a balance. You know, in the old days, I used to write in Ableton and, and then export that out and work in Logic to finish a song. And there was something really kind of endearing about not knowing Ableton that well. And then I got really bored with Logic when they sold to Apple. And so I used Ableton full time, and now I, you know, I kind of know Ableton inside out, back to front. And there's something very nice about having that confidence and speed, but equally there's something lost in the naivety of the enduring period when I didn't know it so well. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, I'd say it's half-half. One of the reasons, you know, a lot of my songs in this day and age start with me sat in bed or laying in bed with a laptop on my knee and nothing else because the sound's coming out of the computer speakers, so you're hearing it in a different way to, say, a professional environment, which obviously kind of gears what what you do next. And by playing melodies on the computer keyboard, you don't know what, the scale is you don't know what the piano layout is or i'm sure you know i can't remember it now i'm looking at a computer keyboard i don't know what a is i think w is a black note and e is a black note and d is a white note but i don't know so your hand forms unfamiliar patterns rather (laughs) than me going to a keyboard and always playing a d minor or a d minor seventh or a d minor ninth and then going to a blah 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 you know it's kind of it's very interesting with some of these keyboards on different bass scales that you now get on iPad apps or just using the computer keyboard that you don't do the same things over and over and over and over again. It's nice to have a small amount of flexibility and familiarity, but it's also nice to allow accidents. You know, I'm cognizant of of two things David Bowie said, which is never play to the stalls. The trouble is you don't learn that till very late on in your career. And equally, as an artist, if you can touch the bottom in the sea or the swimming pool, you're doing something wrong. So I think it's nice to have Mm. that level of familiarity that you know you can execute things quickly, which I can in Ableton, but it's also nice to have new methods of input so you surprise yourself and your hands don't always go the same way. Mm. We're in quite a strange phase. I mean, I define it as strange anyway, i.e., there's there's quite a big reaction against uh, the uh, over the over the saturation let's say of technology the amount of plugins available how affordable a, a soft synth in fact a hard synth can be so there's quite a big reaction about how much stuff is out there and how we're being buried by it hence the Matthew Herbert conversation where we're talking about instruments that have no readout but and yet the technology is still driving the market i mean do do you think where do let, you let, th- go on i was sorry i was gonna say let, let's be really honest about it i moved from sheffield to berlin with a full hardware studio it arrived six weeks later the computer which was a very primitive mac was snapped in two by the time I moved to Italy and I was making a lot of TV music in that three or four year period, my studio was in a laptop, which was nowhere near as powerful as the laptops are today because we're talking 12, 15 years ago. It's about using it to your own ends but not getting engulfed. Again, you know, what's a reoccurring theme of this chat? Balance in mm. the middle of the contradiction. So do I love the fact that I get reasonably accurate emulations of all the classic synthesizers and the facts that I can access a bunch of African Af- instruments on my laptop and that I can do this interview with you a thousand miles apart? Absolutely I do, but I'm self-aware enough and you know I've been doing this long enough to not get engulfed in it. So I, for me, it's an absolute joy. It's an absolute godsend that I can use this to make music and it's my studio because I came from what was before. I remember borrowing a chunk of money, taking a job so I could get a loan and then taking that loan to buy a studio, having been to Graham Park at the Leadmill and Parrot and Winston 
uh, occasions so that I could actually buy the machines to make the music. So, you know, the whole getting into the debate of was that means to making music a filter that isn't now there? You know, it's like Weatherall said in an ironic Guardian interview a year or so ago, we've reached the punk ideal, the total democratization of the making of music and look where it's got us. <laughs> and I think there's a degree of truth in that, you know, but for me, having come from that world, I am very, very, very happy that I can make music with a minimalist equipment set that gives me infinite possibilities. It's only limited by my technical nous and my imagination, I guess, but I'm very happy that I'm coming to it from the period of hardware so that I just don't go nuts in terms of 20 plugins on each track just because I can. Yeah, yeah. And as per the theme of this whole interview, not less, not more, both, sometimes, not always. <laughs> it's a three bears porridge. Yes, yes. Yes, I suppose it is. Yes, we could define the whole of creativity with that if we want. Um, it gives an interesting quandary, though, for the technology companies who have to make money out of evolution. I'm not sure where I would go right now. Like, would, would I go up yours and go really, really minimal with my next synthesizer? to tap into the market and think, well, yeah, they'll be reacting to all the digital stuff. Or would I just do the opposite and go for the bells and whistles? I'm not sure what I'd do, to be honest. I think people are sort of in the middle at the minute. Well, I think, you know, we live in, a for, for music technology, a wonderful time. There are polyphonic analog synthesizers to be had for pennies. Mm. And and that's and you know, and, and that's been driven by consumer demand. That's a really good thing about uh, the plethora of music that's been made, you know, it's made manufacturers go back to hardware again. Um, but again, it's just about balance. It's about what works for you. You can hear wonderful music made on a laptop with nothing else, made in headphones. You can hear terrible music made on a £15,000 CS80 restored Vangelis-esque synthesizer. It's The key for me is this what a laptop and a modern music studio allows is the near perfect implementation of ideas and imagination but whether it's a laptop or a synth or a guitar or a banjo it does not stop average music and bad ideas just because you can do something it doesn't mean that you necessarily should do it yeah and that applies really to any form of, of creativity. You know, the reality is that a lot of the filters to market, as witnessed by the Weatherall quote, have gone. And so anybody can make music. Doesn't mean everybody should make music. Most people do make music. But there is lots and lots of, of wonderful music out there. Mm. Apparently. I don't <laughs> listen to it, but apparently. People tell me. <laughs> An interesting conversation, I'm sure you'll agree. And I think the amount of times the conversation went back to the word contradiction is quite appropriate in telling Mark's story. On the one hand, he is still a professional Yorkshireman who has absolute contempt for a lot of the world around him and is not shy in telling you about it. 
But as you've just heard towards the end of our conversation, there are also some quite balanced and spiritual points of view that are shaping his take on life and creativity. And let's just look at a day in the life of Mark. He lives out in the mountains, out in the sticks in Ibiza. He meditates by his swimming pool. And when he actually had hair, he'd wash it with coconut oil. But on the other hand, you'll also find him on his sun lounger, trading foreign currency, using a piece of software that not only did he devise himself, but he's also managed to license out to the financial sector. And if we look at his creative output, he's actually gone about it like a classic corporate entrepreneur. Not only in the sense that he makes money outside of what we in the music game might know him for, um, unless we forget that he bankrolled the early days of International Feel and all those Harvey releases, uh, using the money he'd raised, quite a, a large sum, from selling a multinational company that basically dealt in the business of lift music for public buildings. Uh, but what I really mean by the corporate entrepreneur statement um, is it the rise of I Feel and then the rise of him as an artist off the back of it is an unbelievable lesson in how to play a marketplace hook, line and sinker in order to build a credible brand. Uh, yes, the music on I Feel was at times brilliant, but his positioning of it and tactical manoeuvring played just as big a part in the story. Uh, so that's all for now. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will end matters with one of Mark's latest tracks on I Feel. This is called The Pathway to Our Lives. See you later.